Once you have it, go ahead and turn to the book of Acts. Like I said, if you're newer over the last couple of weeks, um, whenever we have guest teachers, kind of just leave it as the Lord leads them and what to do. We are getting towards the end of Acts. It's been a couple of years we've been in this book. And Lord willing, we're gonna finish up Acts 26 today. And I'm gonna start by sharing a story with you that displays a spiritual lesson that I believe we can learn in the passage we're gonna be in today. And this story is about an eagle that swooped down one day and grabbed a rodent in its powerful talons. Pulling it to its chest, the eagle soared higher and higher, but suddenly something changed as the eagle was rising because it began losing altitude, flapping its wings erratically eventually crashing into the ground. And upon closer investigation, it was discovered that that little rodent had actually embedded its teeth in the chest of the mighty eagle. So even though the eagle thought he was controlling the rodent, all the while it was holding onto it, the rodent was actually locked into it and draining its life. And this story gives us a great picture of what Sin can do in our lives when it gets a hold of us. Often like that eagle, we can think that we have a grip on it or we have it under our control when it's really the opposite. It has a hold of us. And the thing is, our grip just tends to get tighter and tighter of it the more control we think. But the reality is, as we're clinging to it and it actually has a hold of us, It's slowly but surely draining the life for all of the good things that God is offering you that are right before you. And that's what we're gonna see a great example of today with King Agrippa, if you remember, who Paul is preaching, sharing his testimony with. He's telling about Jesus and the way that he responds to hearing the good news of the gospel. So we started Acts 26 last time. We got through the first 19 verses and we saw Paul, he, he's brought once again before like a, a group of people. Uh, these would be the well-known or the, 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 the people of wealth and stature in, in Caesarea. It was King Agrippa, his sister Bernice, the Roman governor Festus, and a lot of other prominent people. And he's basically brought there because the Jewish people have brought these accusations against him, which nobody has found any evidence of or to be true yet. But Festus is trying to figure out exactly what he is guilty of because he's requested to go be brought before Caesar in Rome and he doesn't want to send him there unless he has some sort of accusation. So he has this big old meeting in in this big old auditorium on the ocean in Caesarea with all these people to hear what Paul has to say. And Paul, he sees this opportunity as as a chance to share the good news with all these people. So he starts by sharing his testimony of how Jesus radically saved him. And then he shares this vision that God gave him for his life, that he was specifically supposed to serve the Lord as his witness for the purpose of opening people's eyes so that their lives could be changed by God for the better. That's where we left off. And so we're gonna pick it up in verse 19. Let me pray one more time for a blessing on God's word and then we'll we'll get into it. Dear Heavenly Father, again, Lord, we just want to settle our hearts and minds. We don't wanna be distracted by the 
because we know, as Peter said, you have the words of life. They, they, these are the very words that bring true life to us. And so therefore, we don't want to miss out on what it is that you want to say to us. There might be some specific thing that we're dealing with right now that's hard or that we're looking for wisdom in or that we need counsel or we need maybe even correction because we're doing some sort of harm. In your word today, might be the word of God for us. And so we want to hear that, knowing that everything you intend for us is always for our best, with our best interests in mind. So may our ears be open to hear what the word of the Lord is today. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 19, Paul's just gotten done. He's, he's shared his testimony. He's shared this vision God gave him. And then he says, therefore, we're basically in accordance with those things, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Or basically what Paul's saying here is that the only thing I'm guilty of is doing exactly what God has told me to do. And I wanna stop there before we move any further because there is such security and safety that you can have in your life if you can say that same thing as Paul right there. If you can say those same words, that I'm just where God wants me doing what he wants me to be doing. If you know you have done nothing wrong in any given situation to violate God's word, you're not guilty of some specific sin that you're aware of, and that like Paul, you are in the Lord's will, just doing what God has told you to do, the reality is you have absolutely nothing to worry about based on what God's told you in his word. Even if you find yourself in a less than desirable situation as Paul does here, imprisoned by the Romans because God tells you specifically in Romans 12 too that his will for you is always going to be good, pleasing, and perfect, right? Not maybe, that's what he says his will is for you. So if you've done nothing to disobey the Lord in any way, you've done nothing to compromise his good, pleasing, and perfect plan for your life, all right? Now, it doesn't mean that if you make a mistake, God isn't big enough to fix that. But a lot of our difficulties in life typically are self-inflicted. And so to be able to be like Paul and say, I'm just doing what God has told me to do, there is such comfort and confidence you can have in that because you can always trust him to be faithful, to work all things for your good, as Romans 8, 28 says. Not that everything will be good, but he will work all things for your good, even the things, the hard things that you don't understand. When you know you're right with him, right where he wants, there's a great proverb that tells us about the safety we have in the will of God when we're in doing what he wants, when we're listening to his word. I'm gonna read the whole thing for you because it's so good and encouraging, but it's Proverbs 2. You can turn there if you want. I'm reading the NLT because that's a little easier to understand when I'm just reading it. It'll be up there on the, the board too. So Proverbs 2, 1 through 22, it says, my child, listen to what I say and treasure my commands. Tune your ears to wisdom and concentrate on understanding. Cry out for insight and ask for understanding. Search for them as you would for silver. Seek them like hidden treasures, then you will understand what it means to fear the Lord and you will gain knowledge of God. 
for the Lord grants wisdom from his mouth or his words, the word of God, come knowledge and understanding. He grants a treasure of common sense to the honest. He is a shield to those who walk with integrity. He guards the paths of the just and he protects those who are faithful to him. Wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will fill you with joy. Wise choices will watch over you. Understanding will keep you safe. Wisdom will save you from evil people for those whose words are twisted. These men turn from their right way to walk down dark paths. They take pleasure in doing wrong and they enjoy the twisted ways of evil. Their actions are crooked and their ways are wrong. Wisdom will save you from the immoral woman, from the seductive words of the promiscuous woman. She has abandoned her husband and ignores the covenant she made before God. Entering her house leads to death. It is the road to the grave. The man who visits her is doomed. He will never reach the paths of life. So follow the steps of the good and stay on the paths of the righteous for only the godly will live in the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be removed from the land and the treacherous will be uprooted. Over and over again, what he says there, you get common sense if you're honest. He's a shield if you walk with integrity. He guards your path if you're just. He protects you if you're faithful to him. Basically, when you are in the will of God, when you are listening to his word, God offers you security. And because Paul was somebody that consistently lived a life that was just focused on following God, not perfect, but that was his heart. I just want to do what God wants me to do. I want to obey him. Because he did that, He got to see God over and over again, protect him from hardships in his life. His life wasn't easy. It was full of all types of hard stuff, but he got to see God come through for him. And at the end of his life or near the end of his life, as he sat there in a Roman prison, he could say with all confidence what he said in 2 Timothy 4, 16 through 18. He said, the first time I was brought before the judge, no one came with me. Everyone abandoned me. May it not be counted against him. Basically, I I was all alone in that there was no people with me, but I don't hold that against them. He goes on in verse 17, but the Lord stood with me and he gave me strength so that I might preach the good news in its entirety for all the Gentiles to hear. And he rescued me from certain death. Yes, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil attack and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. All glory to God forever and ever, amen. That's what you can say when you're in the will of the Lord. It might seem like the world's falling apart around you, but at the end of the day, you've got God's promises that he's got you in his hand and he's gonna see you through it. And there's safety and confidence in that. And I've experienced that principle proved to be true 100% of the time in my life that there's no safer place to be, no better place to be than where God wants me doing what he wants me to doing. And that again, does not mean the absence of adversity because in this world, you can't escape that. Jesus is honest about that. You're gonna have tribulation in this world, but you can have the absolute assurance of God's protection through any difficulty you might face. And the peace that comes with that surety is priceless if you're in his will for you. And because of that reality, there's nothing 
that matters more so to me in my life than to be able to say what Paul says. I'm just doing what God wants me to do. I'm just where he wants me to be. Again, because at the end of the day, I can, I can be there and no matter what's going on, I can have those assurances of his promises and know, you know what? Even if I don't understand why this hard thing's happening to me, I'm where the Lord wants me to be and he's got me and that's all that matters because he's gonna see me through it just like he has time and time again. And you will, not have to be, you will not be able to have that confidence anywhere else. Amen? And Paul has that confidence. And so he's telling them, I'm just doing what God's telling me to do. And he goes on to say about this message that he declared, it says verse 20, but he declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and through all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So he's going on to tell his audience, you know, he shared his testimony. He shared the vision God gave him for his life. And he's saying, I went to all these places and I told all these people about Jesus. And one of the things that I specifically talked about consistently was repentance or basically the changing of one's mind as a person turns away from their sin or living contrary to what God says in his word toward God to help them help be saved from it by him. Okay? And to live on this earth, to live a sinless life, which we could never do, only he could do, but he lived that sinless life on this earth only to die on a cross, a sinner's death, not for any sin he did, but for every sin that we've done so that the just penalty for that sin could be paid for in full and that we could receive that gift of forgiveness through what he did for us. Amen? That's Easter, okay? That's what we're celebrating around Easter. So repentance is turning from our sin and turning towards God to save us from it through that free gift he's given us through his son, Jesus, okay? Now, the evidence of true repentance in a person's life is shown by their deeds, as Paul mentions in verse 20, which will reflect God and his will for them as they move forward in their lives with God leading the way, empowered by his Holy Spirit that dwells in them through their faith in Jesus, helping them know his word and live according to it. James also talks about this in James 2, verses 14 through 17. He said, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can't that kind of faith save anyone or goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing? What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough to bat. What James is not saying is that it is your works that save you or make you right with God, because that would conflict with Ephesians 2, uh, among many other places, nine and 10, that basically tell us that we're saved not by works, but by grace through faith. But what he is saying is that the evidence of true faith is gonna be shown in your words and actions in your life. Because here's the thing, you have God's spirit dwelling in you now through your faith in Jesus Christ. And since God's spirit has taken up residence in you, you can't help but reflect God in his will, in his character in your life. That doesn't mean you're perfect, all right? None of us are until we're with Jesus in heaven, but you are a work in progress, okay? Right from that moment you place your faith in Jesus, 
you are being worked on. You are being transformed. You're being of his son. So right away, there's evidence of God working inside of you. When I was working as an engineer for the state of Oregon, and, and I went from doing that to being a pastor, my life looked somewhat different, all right? Because I had a different boss that I was answering to. He was my boss before, but you know what I mean. Who was giving me different directives in life, okay? So when you get saved through your faith in Jesus and you go from serving the prince of this world, who is Satan and his evil, to serving the God of the universe as a part of his kingdom, you've got totally different leadership and totally different directives. And that is going to show in your life, all right? That's what Paul is saying here. Repentance leads to action, amen? All right, goes on in verse 21. He says, for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. All right, so what Paul's saying, getting here is the real root of the problem, what the Jews had a problem with or why they were so upset with him because he was talking about repentance a popular message to people that think they, they have it all together, like the religious people did, did because they don't. It's not gonna, be a, not gonna be a popular message with anyone that thinks they're good on their own if somehow they, they can just earn their way into God's graces or earn their way to heaven because basically what it says is you can't. And that is why Noah's, Jeremiah's, John the Baptist's messages like Paul's were not popular amongst the people because every single one of those messages said, you guys are messed up because of your sin and you need to turn to God to help you with it because you can't help yourself. And there's an account Jesus gives us in the gospels that talks about the importance of us recognizing our need for God to help us with our sin in our lives. This is Luke 5, starting in verse 27 through verse 32. It says, Later, as Jesus left the town, he saw a collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. Now, you got to understand, this would be crazy in this culture. Tax collectors, for these reasons, they were hated by people, okay? So to have a, somebody like Jesus who would be seen as a Jewish religious leader, like a rabbi, talk to one, let alone say, hey, come, come hang out with me, come follow me, would have shocked everyone, Okay including that tax collector. And what he does is he, he's, he's, he, verse 28 says, so Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Now that in itself, once you leave that tax booth, he isn't going back. So that would be a big deal too. So Jesus invites him. He comes, says in verse 29, later Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. And many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples, don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. Did you know that Jesus didn't come to save good people? As he says there in verse 32. You might say, well, I thought Jesus, you don't need to be saved. But there's a problem with that type of thinking. Because you can think, as Jesus says in verse 32, you are a good person all you want. But what Paul tells us in Romans 3.10 is that no one is righteous, not even one. Now, some of you would say, wow, I don't know about that. And 
probably that's because you're considering goodness or righteousness in the lens of comparing yourself to others. See, we can say that, well, I'm not a saint, I'm not perfect, but I'm definitely better than Stephen, or I'm definitely better than Mike. Well, no, I'm not better than Michael. That would not be somebody you'd look at and do that to. But <laughs> you just see him and like saint in the Bible, He's, his picture's right there. Uh, all, that, all that to say, all that to say is though, that's, that's usually where we get that mentality. We're great, we grade ourselves on a curve, right? We like those, especially in college. They what got me through all the calculus classes and stuff. But like we, we look and we look at it like ourselves as a curve. Well, I'm not as bad as them, so therefore I'm pretty good. But there's a problem with that because since God is perfect and can't be in the just, which means that if there is something wrong in his presence, he's got to deal with it. That's what a just judge does. And so unless you are 100% perfect, you can't be in God's presence. You can't have a relationship with him without him having to deal with that sin. And none of us are perfect. Think we are compared to others. Or as Paul tells us in Romans 3.23, for everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Make good people better and they need to be brought back to life. That's who I came to save. Those that realize they need to be saved. Recently, I was sick. Like I was saying in the beginning, when I first got back, I didn't go to the doctors because quite frankly, I didn't think there was anything that doctor could do for me. Now, had I been sick in such a way that I thought the doctor might be able to help me, guess what? I would have gone to the doctors, all right? Likewise, with our sin, when we realize that we are sick, with the most horrible illness any of us could ever have. Because it's an illness that is just gonna continue to destroy your life and those around you. And ultimately, a hundred out of a hundred times, it's going to lead to your death. When you realize that, you realize you need help. And that's what God sent his son to do to help you in a way that you can never help yourself. And when you call out to him for that help, he's more than willing to save you and heal you. Amen? Verse 22, to this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and greater. Basically what he's saying is a great example for us in seeing that this situation that could be viewed horribly, that he's in prison and captive unjustly, he sees as, well, this is the hand of God. He's in control of this whole thing. Actually, he's the one that's actually brought me here today to share this greatest news you could ever hear with you. And he goes on to say, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Or basically, I'm saying nothing different than what the prophets in God's word have early said would happen. And he goes on in verse 23 and says that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both but to our people or the Jews and to the Gentiles, or basically that's the gospel right there. He's, he's basically saying that I'm just telling you what God's word already talks about, that Jesus would come, he'd die, he'd raise from the dead, and through his death and resurrection, it would be a light, or that everyone can be Jesus Christ. That's what he's telling them. Amen. I'm glad you're excited, Dylan. Verse 24, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus with a loud voice said, Paul, you are, and Paul said, I'm not in my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true 
in rational words. So the Roman governor, he interrupts Paul. He's like, you're crazy, man, talking all this people dying, raising from the dead. But Paul responds to him by pointing out to him that, hey, I'm just telling the truth. And not only is it the truth, it's actually rational or reasonable if you're actually listening to what I'm saying. And that's something we have to remember because God sometimes acts above reason in that he does the miraculous, but he never acts contrary to it, okay? It is totally reasonable what God's word tells us about Jesus Christ, all right? But for themselves, it's foolish. Otherwise, it's not reasonable that they don't believe in it, right? And Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He says, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. All right? So seeing that he's getting nowhere with um, Festus, Paul moves his attention to King Agrippa. And it says in verse 26, for the king knows about these things and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Now, Paul understanding that King Agrippa had knowledge of of God's word, so he would have known to some degree all the the prophecies about the Messiah, and and he could relate those to what he was telling him about Jesus. But he also knew that he would have heard firsthand accounts of Jesus because he's, he's ruling during a time that isn't that far after when Jesus actually lived on this earth. So he would have heard firsthand accounts of Jesus and of the other events that Christianity was founded on. And those things were not done in a corner or secretly as verse 26 says, but rather they were witnessed by people and historically documented And those facts could be examined and verified as truth, which would make them rational to believe as it isn't reasonable or rational to ignore or deny things that actually happened, is it? The fact that Jesus was a real person who actually lived and died and lived again on this earth as witnessed among many people, among the many other miraculous things that he did that are documented not only in the Bible, but other historically recognized texts must be accounted for when you are told about Jesus' decision about him, which is what he tells Agrippa to do in verse 27. And note that he asks Agrippa if he believed the prophet's First, because if Agrippa believed what the prophets had to say in God's word about the Messiah, then truth in reason should have led him to believe that Jesus was whom those prophets were speaking of because he fulfilled their prophecies. Basically, Paul was trying to utilize the information that he knew Agrippa already believed to be true as a sort of, in, sort of incomplete puzzle that Jesus provided the missing pieces to so that Agrippa could understand the whole truth. And that's a great tactic when you're talking to people about Jesus Christ, when you're sharing them, because we all at some point or another were searching for the same truth that we found in him. And so looking for the same things that they're looking for, we know how to fill in the missing pieces have their questions answered, just like we have. Amen? That's what he's doing here. And it goes on in verse 28, and it says, Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Now, 
If you guys have a King James version, anyone have a King James in here? Zach, can you read for me the King James translation of verse 28? Now, I like that translation better because basically the gist of what he's saying is that, Paul, you almost convinced me to become a Christian. And if you think of that, just what he's saying there, I'm almost convinced that is such a sad thing, isn't it? Because in essence, what he's saying is, I almost believed in Jesus, which means that I'm almost forgiven of my sin and the guilt and condemnation that comes with that. I'm almost able to experience true purpose in my life for the first time. I'm almost able to experience the peace and the joy and the fulfillment that only can come through God. I'm almost able to be forgiven of all my sin. I'm almost able to experience eternal life. I'm almost able to set, be set free from my sin and the destruction it's causing me. You could go on and on. But the problem is there's almost isn't enough. There's no such thing as almost being saved. You either are a saint or an ain't, as Pastor J. Vernon McGee says so often if you listen to any of his sermons. And Agrippa really only further condemned himself by making such a statement because what he's saying is that I understand what you're saying enough to see that it's good and it's right and that I should make this decision, but I still don't want what Jesus has to offer me. And that's even worse than just not believing it. Verse 29, and Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Or basically Paul's just saying, my wish isn't only for you to get a saved Agrippa. I want everyone here to get saved. Everyone here has the chance today. Everyone that's listening to the good news of Jesus Christ can place their faith in Jesus and be saved today. And he goes on in verse 30 and he says, then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So Paul's audience, they're done listening to him. I think he hit a little close to home when he started in a sense, doing an altar call, putting it on them. I, you need to receive Kind of flipped it to the rest of them. They just got up and left because they didn't want to be put in that position. And Agrippa, he doesn't find Paul guilty of anything, just like Festus and Felix before him. There's no evidence of him being guilty. They still can't find anything him guilty. Yet Paul couldn't be set free, as it says here, because he'd already appealed to Caesar, so that's who he was going to, which has led some people to question, really, was that a good idea by Paul? Should he have invoked his right as a citizen of Rome, or maybe he should have just kind of trusted God more to kind of deal with things as he wanted to. But the reality is it's all presumption. We, don't, we, we can't speculate. We don't know for sure. But either way, what we see is that God does complete his sovereign plan for Paul to get to Rome and be a witness for him, a plan that he put on Paul's heart back in Acts 9.21, and then he confirmed to Paul in Acts 23.11. And in the next couple chapters, we're gonna see him exactly do that, get Paul to Rome on an all-expenses-paid trip to get there. Amen? All right. Now, to wrap things up, as the worship team comes back up here, 
Some commentators speculate multiple reasons why Agrippa might have in fact chosen to not believe in Jesus here. I mean, he says he's almost persuaded. So again, he must have seen that, man, this is like truth. This is resonating in my soul. I am a sinner. I need to repent of my sin. I know this Jesus to be real. I've read the scriptures he's talking about that prophesied the things he would do. And that Jesus that was here, I've heard that firsthand accounts. He actually did those things, but yet he still bailed. He still didn't pull the trigger. He still didn't believe. So people wonder why that was. Some say it might've been because of his sister, Bernice, who was sitting right beside him in the immoral, incestuous relationship historians say they had together. It's an interesting fact that whenever you see Agrippa mentioned in Acts, you always see him with Bernice. He appeared to have a tight grip on her, just like that eagle did on that rodent in that story I shared in the beginning. But the reality was she was the one that had the hold on him. So much so that when it came to being offered victory over death, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, instead of choosing to grab onto it, he instead chose to hold on to her because he probably understood that making that choice to follow Jesus would have also meant that he would have had to repent of that sinful relationship he was in with his sister, which was a sacrifice he apparently wasn't willing to make. Maybe the reason was the other guy sitting next to Agrippa, Festus, who was sitting there calling Paul crazy. Maybe Agrippa was just like, I can't believe in this Jesus. I'll get ridiculed by these people if I do that. Maybe he cared more about what people thought about him for people than at what it was before the Lord Almighty wanting to cling to the praise of men because of his pride, which caused him to miss out on grabbing onto God's free gift of salvation. Maybe the reason was his wealth and status as a king. Paul, the one telling Agrippa about Jesus was certainly no king. He was a prisoner in chains. And maybe Agrippa thought, if I become a Christian, I might just lose it all and become like Paul. Agrippa basically wanting to hold on to the fading riches of this world instead of grabbing on to the eternal blessings God was offering him. Now, whatever the specific reason was, it, it's just speculation. We don't know for sure. It doesn't really matter though, because whatever the reason was in some way or another, instead of repenting of sin in his life, he chose to hold on to it instead of reaching to take hold of what the Lord had for him, even though what God had to offer was so much better and would last forever, for all eternity. The sin in his life clearly being locked into him, just like those rodents' teeth into or not, which inevitably would culminate with his death. And this is what sin does in our lives as well, church. We think we have a hold of it. We think we have it. And if we let it hold on to us long enough, it'll just keep draining the life from us and ultimately lead to our death as well. And when you're so busy trying to hold on to that, it's preventing you from grabbing on 
to some part or another of the blessings that God intends for your life that come with obedience to him and his will for you, the safest place you could ever be, the best place you could ever be. Amen? If you're a Christian here today, through our faith in Jesus, we can be forgiven, we're forgiven of our sin, but that doesn't mean a sin in your life. And the reality is, seeing some part of the eternal life that God intends for you if you don't let it go. And I can tell you right now, there's not a single good reason not to let it go. If you do have a reason in your head not to let it go or walk away from it and walk towards God, that is the enemy who is lying to you because he has one of two motives and you've not repented of your sin. This is an opportunity for you right now, right here to do that. To walk away from your sin and walk toward God and received his free gift of forgiveness through faith in his son, Jesus, who died for you. So you could be set free of sin and its destruction and experience eternal life of blessing with the God that made you and loves you. And, and for you as well, if there's a reason not to do that, that's a lie from the enemy who's trying to lead you down that path of destruction. Either way, the answer is the same as far as will sin go. You run from it and you run to the Lord who's here in this place with open arms ready to receive you. Amen? Amen. So we're gonna have the communion tables open because the communion God told us or Jesus left this for us to do in remembrance of him. Remember of the sacrifice on the cross. We Take the cracker that represents his body that was broken for you and me so that our body wouldn't have to be broken. All the stuff that he went through on that cross that we'll probably reflect on this week at some point or another during Friday or Sunday service was a picture of our sin deserved. As gruesome as what he went through seems, it's actually not nearly as is the judgment and wrath that your sin deserves because of the death and destruction it caused. And Jesus willingly took that upon himself, God's wrath, God's judgment on his, put upon his only son who did nothing wrong, but did, took everything I did wrong, everything you did wrong so that you wouldn't have to. When we take that juice, we remember his blood that was spilled on that cross that was the the what was necessary, the perfect sacrifice that could atone for our sin, could pay the price in full. That's because it was finished. He did what only could, he could do and paid for your sin in full. So we take these and we remember, we give reverence to Jesus. We thank him for what he's done for us. If we have sin in our lives, we confess it first, knowing that he'll be just to forgive us of it because he's already paid the price for it. But also, that we need to be healed from it. We need help to walk forward in the righteousness, the right living that we can't do by ourselves. We need his Holy Spirit to do that. And we want to do that because we've tasted the, the horrible effects of sin. We don't want to stay in sin. He saved us from that. We've repented from it. So this is an opportunity for unbelievers and believers alike to repent of their sin, come before God 
and be healed. So you're gonna, we're gonna sing a song or two and you guys are gonna just come up, grab the communion elements, take them on your own, take them with your spouse or your family. We're gonna have our prayer team around the room. If you're somebody that needs to receive Jesus in your life as your Lord and Savior and you just don't even know where to start, you don't know how to pray, come up and we'll lead you in a prayer. If you're a brother or sister that has sin, you need to confess that. James 5 says there's healing that comes with confessing to one another. You know why? Because when it's in the dark, Satan, like so the Bible to bring it out in the light. We're not hiding it from God. He loves you and saved you knowing you were gonna do that sin. So you bring it out in the open and you confess it and you ask for forgiveness and Jesus already paid the price. He's already forgiven it. And once it's out in the open, there's nothing to be ashamed of. God can remind you, no, I paid for that. And when Satan brings his accusations against you, Jesus is like, no, no, no. They're right in me. My blood paid for that. Don't be like Agrippa and leave here almost repenting. Because as I said before, there is no almost. And God's given you the chance right now to do business with him. And he's done everything that needs to be done. All you have to do is receive it. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you so much for the free gift of salvation you've offered each of us. We thank you that you've set us free from sin. Lord, we know we fall short so often and we're thankful that you're so patient with us and you're, you're so willing to be there and help us live in this new life you've given us, the better life, the abundant life. And we want it, Lord. We want all of it. Help us not believe the enemy's lies that somehow he's got something better. We've tasted and seen what this world has to offer and there is nothing better than what you have for us. Help us not believe his lies to stay in condemnation and in the dark. Lord, we're all, we're all, we're all made equally the same in that we're all sinners. The price for all of our sins. We have knowing that we fall short and you loved us still. And you want nothing more for us to cling to you, to be honest with you so you can help us. Lord, we don't wanna be a room full of almosts today. We wanna be those that unlike Agrippa, we respond and we call out to you for help. And I pray that you would just do what you say you're gonna do. You meet us in that place of humility. In Jesus' name, amen.